to a special edition of the Experience Darden and the Exec MBA podcast. I'm your host, Brett Twitty. So this episode is yet another installment from our ongoing Faculty Spotlight series, what we're calling Office Hours. We're running the series all summer, and this conversation is one I think you're really going to enjoy. This Office Hours installment is with Professor Greg Fairchild, a member of the Strategy, Ethics, and Entrepreneurship faculty here at the Darden School of Business. And we talk about so many things in this interview. Greg touches upon his research, what brought him to Darden, his work with the Resilience Project and the Darden Prison Program, and a lot of other things that feel very timely with everything that's going on in the world these days. I think you're really going to enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, here's my interview with Greg Fairchild. Greg, excited to be here with you today. So tell us a little bit more about you and your background. Well, first of all, if some of you right now are thinking, well, gee, I want to go to business school and I, and I don't know where I want to go. Um, let me tell you that I was in your situation myself um, years ago. So in the fall of 1989, I decided that I would probably pursue an MBA. And I'll do this very quickly. I had a number. I was living in New York City. I was working in the fashion industry and I had a few ideas. They mostly involved the Northeast. And um, I had this opportunity to go to a briefing, something not unlike what we're doing now, uh, at a place called Manufacturers Hanover Trust on Park Avenue in New York City. And I went and I had a great conversation with a few people. And here's, a, here's another thing I'll, tell, I'll share with you. I had a coworker who went along with me and it turned out that coworker um, knew some of the people that were there that night for the Manufacturers Hanover Trust Darden event. And the long story short is two weeks later, I got my acceptance letter to the Darden School. And I came to the Darden School to do my MBA. And we'll get into why I, why I made that choice and what I felt about it. Um, it's important to note that that coworker, well, she also ended up coming to the Darden School the following year. And I should say that we've been married uh, now since 1994. So there's a nice little Darden family story here. Next, I also had a second bite at this apple because um, I was very interested in uh, possibly continuing to be involved in community activity in some way. And I was working in marketing at Procter & Gamble. I was a brand manager in hair care and in cosmetics. And if you look like right over there, you can see some of the edges of my cosmetics ads that I did way back in the day. And so what happened in this moment is that um, I had some faculty here at Darden. One of the great things about Darden is you get to know people personally. And some of the faculty at Darden started saying to me in my second year, you ought to consider getting a PhD. And you ought to think about becoming a professor. And I bring this up to say, Darden's the type of institution where someone could know you in that personal way. And so I sit here now as a professor and I've been teaching at Darden for 20 years on the basis of having some people vouch for me, write letters of recommendation for me to get a PhD, which I went back and got in New York City and to return to Darden after that. And it's been a it's been a ride. It's been a journey ever since. Well, Greg, I mentioned at the top that you're a member of the Strategy Ethics Entrepreneurship Faculty, and so tell us a little bit more about what you teach here at Darden. I imagine you know those things, and, and maybe 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 more at a course level. What does that look like? Um, 
you teaching in that in that area? Brett, I think there are three of us in the in the building that have taught actually all of those areas. So I've taught the core strategy course at Darden. I've taught a strategy elective at Darden. I've taught entrepreneurship at Darden, and I've probably taught that throughout the 20 years. Um, and um, I've also taught ethics at Darden. And for those of you who are listening, Brett and I have a long running dialogue about novels that we like. Brett is a, I'm telling you now about Brett. Brett reads more books in a year than you could imagine, like 70 books a year. Okay, so he's a great source for me and he loves to entertain me by talking to me about the latest books I'm reading. The reason that's important is because I teach a second year elective at Darden, which is indeed about fiction literature, how the reading of fiction literature really makes us more human and makes us better leaders. And, and I'll have a book out in about a year about that topic. All right, advanced news here at office hour session. This is, is this breaking news? Can we classify it as breaking news? I, I would call it breaking whispers. How's that? I don't think it's news, but it is, it is something that's happening. All right, well, what's on my mind is you've been a Darden student and now you're a Darden professor. What is, what's that like to be leading these classes and, and teaching at the school that you attended? You know, it, it's interesting being, it's like being behind the curtain at a play. If you've, if you've had the chance to uh, choose your favorite play, uh, I, I don't know what you're gonna choose, but um, let's say it's Les Miserables. And then you get to be in the cast and um, now you're singing and performing. And, and that's the analogy I would draw. I was, I came to Darden and I was taken with the case method. You hear a lot about that, but I'm going to tell you what I liked about it. I had been in environments where you listened. This was active. It was engaged. And if I had an opinion, even a discordant opinion, a disagreement, I could introduce it. And I loved that. And I, I never felt the same. Even when I was later in my PhD and I was lectured to again, I felt like, why can't I talk? Um, what I'll also tell you is then coming to the other side of the stage, I now understand that there's a lot of uh, stage management and stage craft that goes into what we do. And so in so many ways, professors at Darden have to learn the craft of leading a discussion where people are gonna come at you, disagree with you, ask you questions you didn't anticipate. And that's not easy. And then what I would also say is that I began to learn as well about all the people that make the stage work. And so much of the focus is on the faculty and I, I get that, but I don't want anyone to miss how many people, Brett would be one of these, help us do this show. So you have been a Darden student, you're now teaching at Darden, across all these different areas. When, when you're researching, what, what are you looking at? What are you, what are you most passionate about from a research standpoint? So, I've, so I'm an entrepreneurship professor. And I remember when I first came to Darden, I said, yeah, I'm interested in entrepreneurship. Silicon Valley is super cool. Uh, Route 128, super cool. Research Triangle, amazing. I'm interested in the places people don't think about for entrepreneurship. And so if you noodle around to things I, I, I write about or I think about, folks, I think about 
entrepreneurship and the, the drive-by flyover places that don't get visited a lot and the places where people don't think entrepreneurship can thrive. If anything, I'm the person who's been interested in, well, well how do uh, those microbacteria grow in those hot tubes in the, in, the, in the bottom of the ocean? You know, we have these super hot, superheated areas and somehow microbes grow there and thrive there. I'm interested in that. How does entrepreneurship work in the place people don't anticipate that it will? So where has that taken you in your, in your work? Like what has that been places in Virginia, all over the country, you know, over, over the world? Where, where's that, where's that taken you? Well, it's been, it, it, it's funny because, you know, in one sense, had I been the other person, I could have just spent time in, in a few select places. Um, I noticed that someone weighed in and said, hi, I'm, I'm contacting you from India. Um, well, guess what? Um, studied entrepreneurship in India. I noticed uh, someone and I've been to a number of the places where entrepreneurial activity uh, is going on in India. I noticed someone mentioned they were from Ghana, have been to um, a number of places in Ghana, both um, uh, the capital um, but also some of the places where, again, this sort of micro entrepreneurship goes on. I went to Haiti after the uh, earthquake and we began thinking and looking at how entrepreneurship would grow there. I went to Argentina after the decline in the currency and six presidents in a single year to look at how entrepreneurship would work there. I, I could keep going outside the US, but to be quite honest, the bulk of my work has been inside the US. And Brett already knows, that was a gimme question. He knows that I travel to rural areas in the United States. He knows that I look at inner city areas in the United States. I spend time thinking about how we provide finance to those areas um, and what types of financial instruments can we use to build businesses in those areas. And he knows I also look at, again, what, how does someone think about growing a business, again, in that place, be it in the U.S., outside the U.S., where people are often challenged and where others would say, I'd rather pass. So that brings us very naturally to the book you just published, uh, Emerging Domestic Markets. Um, so you've been doing this work for a number of years. What led you to say this is the right time to publish, publish this book? Man, I wish I could claim that I was good on timing. My publisher would tell you that book was four years in the making. So um, four years in the writing, 20 years in the making. I got asked to do that book years ago, and I just never got around to it. Uh, so I can't claim any timing. What I can claim is the book was my way of pulling together a couple of things. First of all, the concept of emerging markets as a start comes from a gentleman who was with the International Finance Corporation in the 1970s. And when he creates it, what he's saying is he's saying there are markets outside of the West, largely, that he sees the conditions in those markets as being one that allow for, with the right investment, rapid growth. Now, I don't know if the people in those markets thought of themselves as emerging. Not sure that everyone in Chile or Costa Rica or Vietnam said, I'm emerging right now. Um, I think there were some people who viewed them. And his point was, let's open the aperture. 
This is my point as well. Let's open the aperture to have a sense of who could be play, who could be the businesses that could be the next growth area. And if people could be good about focusing on what the factors were in those places, then they could be better investors. And so I've taken that idea and I've applied it to the work that I've done. So, you know, I've done work in Chinatown in San Francisco and Chinatown in New York City. I've done work in um, Detroit and Harlem and uh, the West Philadelphia, North Philadelphia areas that are very segregated and challenged, but businesses in all of those places. I've done work in Appalachia and um, also rural areas where people are thinking about growing firms. And so I, I once had the wonderful thing in Maine of going to a place that was a fishing business and a cannery and how that all got funded. And so my interests, again, are always in those untraveled places. And my notion in the book is those, there are conditions that might go unnoticed that are suggesting that these places are poised and can be poised for extreme growth if we provide the right incentives and investments. And frankly, something you didn't ask, I write the, this book for this audience because in my view, it's MBAs and it's people like MBAs that can grow the next generation of businesses. And I'd love it if some of them grew businesses in these areas. I love what you just said there. I wanna ask you a related question. So you go to these areas, are people surprised that you're there studying what's happening? Um, I, I mean, I imagine no one is surprised in the Silicon Valley when an MBA professor shows up and says, hey, I'd like to see what you're doing here. Um, maybe in Appalachia, it might be a little bit different. I wonder though, what's the reaction? Um, so if anyone knows, um, in Kentucky, there actually is a Kentucky Fried Chicken original restaurant. And there, it's a hotel also. And, and it's like a diner. So I went once to that community to do some research on growing businesses in Appalachia, not to visit Kentucky Fried Chicken, actually to visit a business that had to do with ways of rescuing miners from underground and businesses that would have a way of doing that. And uh, it was fascinating. It was entirely fascinating. And yes, there are these questions and people say, well, wait, are you, are you from the urban affairs school? Mm, no, I'm not from the urban affairs school. Wait, are you, are you from sociology school? No, no, I'm from the business school. Okay, then why are you here? And in the, in the weirdest turn on this, here in the state of Virginia, when I was doing this in low-income communities in all over Virginia, the Eastern Shore, uh, Danville, Virginia, Franklin, Virginia, at one of these visits, someone said, well, the rumor is the Darden School is looking to, uh, and there are a set of investors behind you, and they want to come in and buy up our businesses and take them away from us. And this is the reason you're visiting us is you're the, you're the early look to get to see the businesses. And here's the thing about your question, Brett, and about those types of responses. People are so unaccustomed to seeing people from elite institutions and elite business schools particularly coming to ask those questions and to listen to them that on some level, they don't trust us. I want to change that. I want the MBAs to be received as the honest brokers that I think we are. It's a fantastic point. And I, you know, I, I've enjoyed so much of what you shared already. Um, the thing I'm thinking about is, so you mentioned 20 years of research, 
four years of writing, but this book has wandered into a, a, a moment here in the United States of lots of discussion about urban, rural, a political divide, socioeconomic divide, also a conversation about how do we build inclusive wealth here in the United States. And we have this wide disparity between the top and the lower ends of sort of the economic strata. How do we change this? I would imagine your book would have some ideas about that. So my publisher uh, called me after the book, uh, the book came out in January. And uh, my publisher called me and said, man, did we fall right in the middle of um, a real change. And I told you guys, I, I've been, he'd been waiting for my book for a while. You couldn't be more right. I mean, I've been on a steady stream of webinars, not unlike this, or talk sessions. I did one from McKinsey that was about, again, this conversation about um, how we could think differently about creating a um, way of being inclusive, not just within firms, but across firms and across communities. And I don't, I, you know, and I don't want to do too much commercial for Greg, but what also happened in the same moment was about three years ago, the U.S. Surgeon General approached me about a, a project to work on, which was called Community Health and Economic Prosperity. And the report was about how um, businesses could be helpful in growing the health, the public health in communities, and why it would be important for businesses. And Brett, right in the middle of us, and we that, by the way, came out as well in January. And um, we'd been working on that for three years. Well, about 18 months ago, the notion that the health of the community would infect, and I am using that word deliberately, the health of our businesses became very, very immediately clear. Not anything we would have wished, but that report spoke to what we were experiencing. And yes, certainly health, but inequality and inclusion all of a sudden became understood in a new way. And I wouldn't have wished a pandemic on us all. I in no means want to say that. But it, with both my book and the Surgeon General's report, external forces happen to have illustrated why these things are important. So one of the things you mentioned, and I know from just reading some of the, your articles that you're passionate about is, so financial services, who gets supported, who's not, who doesn't get supported, these loan decisions that have real implications or financial decisions that have real implications uh, for business owners, operators. What have you learned through this research? Because I, I, I do think of this also as a time where people are trying to figure out sort of access to capital and how do we, how do we give people broader access and what are the things, what are the barriers and how do we, how do we address some of this? So what have, what have you learned by looking at these questions? Well, a couple of things, Brett. First of all, um, you couldn't be more right. I, I, and this has nothing to do with me. There are changes afoot. Some of you may have saw in the news that um, a number of the major banks in the last two weeks have made two momentous decisions. The first is to remove um, penalty fees for, with, for over withdrawals or for um, when you have revolving uh, problems. Uh, you should read about it. It's a change in their business models that reflects their understanding that, well, in the last year, we've seen that people run into economic difficulty. That doesn't mean they're a bad banker, they're a bad bankable person or an unbankable person. The other thing you've seen is a number of the major banks announced they're going to start offering credit, that is loans or credit products, to people who don't have a credit score. Now, that sounds crazy for some of us. 
But I want us to understand that just because one do doesn't have a credit score doesn't mean one isn't credit worthy. The key steps here are to get the right measures to figure out whether they're credit worthy. Again, Brett, those things just happen. They are things that I refer to in my book, but lo and behold, here they come. What I will also share is that in my book, I talk about financial inclusion for entrepreneurs because that's my area, but I do talk about it for individuals. And so there's a chapter in the book um, that's about, of all things, American Express. Now, for those of us of a certain age, American Express, your membership has its privileges. What a title. And American Express, some of you may or may not know, launched products about five years ago targeting first uh, people that were military veterans. Many of you don't know, many military enlisted people find themselves in financial difficulty. If we have any military people, you will know this is true. And they created a product targeted at folks that are military servicemen uh, to help them with those financial smoothing problems. But they also created a product called Bluebird and Bluebird was a product designed to be offered to people as a prepaid account but one without heavy fees and one that would allow them to do banking in a way where they didn't have to use cash. We don't often think about this, but the use of cash is a security risk. It's also, it's less trackable for the, for the consumer. So I wrote a, a case that I use in the business school, but I also have a chapter in the book, which is about this company who had targeted really affluent people deciding that they wanted to go after these other two populations. And that, again, is where I find my most interest. So this is a talk that's co-sponsored by Darden Ideas to Action. And I want to mention the Ideas to Action article that you published a little while ago, specifically focused um, on uh, a family business in the Los Angeles area seeking a loan from a large commercial bank. Okay, it's a great read. Um, it's fascinating to me, uh, the banker in that situation, they sort of has this kind of vigilance about uh, his work and trying to work with his family business to kind of coach them through the loan process. I imagine that doesn't happen all the time. Um, so, you know, how did you find out about that story? What, what do you like about that story? What do you think it, it's, you know, what's instructive about it as, as we have these kind of conversations? Brett, I'm super glad you asked where I found out about it. So I think over the years at Darden, I've gotten known as, oh, he's the guy that does the development stuff. I'm not the only one, by the way. There are others, and I don't want to leave out anybody. You'll look around on the website, and you'll see we have a number of people. But I am one of those people. And so I had a student who had had me in the first year. Um, her name was Catherine Corrales. Kat Corrales is what she went by. And she had worked for her summer at Wells Fargo Bank. And she said, I think there's a case for you. And uh, that case is the one Brett is referring to. It was about a Tostada manufacturer in Southgate, Los Angeles. And for those of you that don't know the area, that's South Central Los Angeles. And the Tostada manufacturer was looking for a $7 million expansion loan. And the story is about how that loan came to be and how that business came to grow. And the story is an uncommon story because it did take to Brett's point a commercial lender who understood the company, what it was about, the family. Um, in fact, so we, we flew out to Los Angeles and we interviewed the family and the banker and the, 
the bankers, the bankers bosses and everybody involved. We spent three days out there. And the funny thing is, I'll, I'll tell you, you ask about people being surprised. First of all, all those interviews for those cases on site at the business were done with a translator. In fact, Kat Corrales, the MBA student who wrote it with me, was the translator as we did sort of uh, English to Spanish translation. But one of the funny moments was when the, the family who owned the business were touring us through the plant. And it's a beautiful plant, you guys. But um, when they're touring us through the plant, I kept noticing that as I would come look at a various part of the, of the manufacturing process, the staff would all turn away from me. And, um, I, and so I, I eventually was like, yo, what, it, what, what, what's going on with that? And they said, oh, they think you're um, immigration. And you're here, black man in a Latino business with a tie and a suit on. And, and, and they said, they don't know what you're doing here. And they worry that you're immigration or you're gonna ask them for their cards or their identity. And so when you come walking up, they don't know what else to think. Like, why, why would he be here? So uh, I, didn't, I didn't tell that story, but it was a very funny, memorable moment for me. So that kind of case discussion is something you could have in a Darden classroom. We've gotten some questions about the case method and, and learning through the case method. And Greg, I know you're really passionate about this topic, particularly related to the kinds of conversations that we're having here. What do you enjoy about having these discussions um, in, in a case context, reading these kind of cases that, that push beyond maybe what people think about the business or what the traditional business lane is? Well, I, it, we could talk, Brad, about that particular case. I mean, when I teach that case in the classroom, um, a couple of cool things. Um, first, Kat Corrales. One of the things you get to do when you're a Darden folks is you might get to write a case with a professor. And if you're really lucky, you'll get to see it taught before you graduate. And I should let you know that happened to me. Um, again, let's waffle all the way back. I, um, I wrote a proposal to go to the, so the former Soviet Union to study the Pizza Hut operation that had opened in Leninsky Prospect, on Leninsky Prospect in Moscow in uh, the summer of 1991. And I did go there and I did interview, by the way, with a translator in Russian, and I came back and wrote a case with one of our professors, Elliot Weiss. That, by the way, was one of the things that kicked me over. Um, for me, when I did the same experience with Kat Kerala's, what I'll tell you is um, we come in and we teach that case. And that case isn't sort of structured to say, here's all the reasons you should do the loan. We know that the loan was eventually done. The discussion in the case is, here are the numbers. And here's how you think about doing loans. What are, the, what are the C's of credit? The five, six C's of credit and how you use them. And we have a, a robust debate about what those five C's are and how this loan stacks up. And I love it, sports fans, when I'm in there and I got a group of people that say, Greg, this loan is foolish. There's no reason to do it. And there's some other people that say, Greg, maybe there's a way we could do it because that's a case discussion. When it's a lecture, it's me telling you how the loan worked and that they did it and why they did it. When it's a case discussion, we fight it out. I love that. 
So we're getting some really nice questions here in the in the Q and A, Greg. And I, I want to while we're on this topic of emerging markets and you know essentially entrepreneurship and businesses blooming in uh, these these areas that maybe are a little bit more remote um, flyover states. I think that was mentioned earlier. Um, wonder when you when you go to these places, are are you also thinking about um, you know, sort of not just who is starting a business, but maybe, you know, are women, minorities, these kinds of questions about sort of entrepreneurship with this kind of inclusion lens too, and equity? Oh, very much so, Brett. I mean, I, I like to take the view that the principles that we teach at Darden um, are not respecters of persons. That is, the, the techniques we teach don't care whether you're a woman, whether you are an immigrant, whether, you, um, whether you're in a group that in the society you're in is looked down on. I view these techniques as enabling. I view these techniques as being able to create the next future. And so, but I do very much think about ways that groups are not as included as we would like. You know, maybe breaking news, I don't wanna to give too much is, we're working on a new initiative right now at Darden. And if any of you are interested in asset management as an industry, and I suspect some of you might be, um, we have been talking um, among a group of the leaders about a problem that asset management has, particularly in private equity and venture capital, and that is a demography problem. Very few women and minorities work in the field. There was a report released by BCG just yesterday about the diversity problem you can look it up, the diversity problem in private equity and venture capital. Well, we at Darden are intending and interested in doing something about that. And that is, we're interested in creating more educational opportunities, more initiatives, more ways of thinking about what the problems are for the asset manager, private equity, venture capital industry in creating inclusion at entry, at promotion, and in retaining people. And there are a group of us that are spearheading this and stay tuned. Uh, we are very interested in that type of question. And that's the new frontier we're going after. One of the things that's been an ongoing storyline, at least here in the US during the pandemic is people moving out of urban areas, maybe moving to more rural areas. And I uh, wonder, as, as you followed this trend, do you think that there are particular parts of the country that, you know, based upon the research you've done, the work that you've done, that you think are poised to, to maybe go through a, a flowering, a, a, a blooming period uh, with all of this? I, I do. Here's what I wonder about. Um, I don't know that I have any answers. I do have questions. Um, I'm very interested in a few things. A number of states are creating incentives to draw, frankly, people like yourselves. So um, you'll see, and you can Google around, a number of states are saying, hey, person like you, if you were to move to Oklahoma, if you were to move to Arkansas, there's even a discussion about one of these for certain parts of Virginia. We will give you some money, we'll help you get a business started, we'll help you do some things, because the people matter, the who. You know, one way I used to think about this economic development work when I went to low-income communities is I would sometimes be talking in low and moderate income communities and I would say, you know, one of your biggest exports 
are your talent. That your people who grow up in low-income communities often say, I'm going to move. And I'm going to move to one of those other places we mentioned earlier. My goal is to get a job at Amazon and move to Seattle or, frankly, to Northern Virginia. And that's wonderful. I don't, I don't, I'm, please know for those of us that are watching, I'm not saying that's bad or you shouldn't do that. I am saying that there's increased understanding that the people matter, the talent, and that we're in a war for talent. And then further, there's increased technological ability for us to grow, start, run, and finance businesses from places outside the Silicon Valleys that we talked about earlier. And so, um, I have some small bets, Brett, on some places. Uh, I'm not going to share them now, um, but I do have some ideas of some places that I think are going to experience some growth. The other thing about that, though, is, is because in some of those communities, the number of people who have a certain level of talent and interest is so small, a very few people can make a huge difference a very few people could make a huge difference in certain communities. I don't want that to be lost. So one of the things you've studied a lot is, is small business resilience. Um, why some businesses stick around and persist. And I wanna make sure you have a chance to share what you've learned through that work because this has been a very challenging year. Um, and, and this is a very difficult environment for business to operate, even as we start to come out here in the U.S., start to reopen and all these kinds of things, it's still going to be challenging. So uh, what have you learned um, from the work that you've done with small businesses? So we were really embedded in that work at the last financial crisis, so the 08, 09, 10 period. Myself, uh, my colleague Jared Harris, also a strategy professor, we, we were involved in that work. And during that period, what we were interested in is exactly what Brad has teed up. We were interested in, that was a period where I think all of you know, the markets were in a free fall. I think you know real estate and underlying equities. I think you know we had banks failing. And uh, Jared and I and others were really interested in the question of, well, who was doing well in those places? And we set out to study those institutions. Here's what we found. First, we found that a high level of engagement with the local community in more than just a commercial way meant something. So if you were a business to business firm and you exported or sold to corporations, did people in the community know you, understand you and interact with you? And some of you are gonna say, well, Greg, that's minor or it makes common sense. Well. It's, it's less minor than you might think, and it's less common than you might think. People often each week are concerned about making the sale. They don't think about um, what's happening in their backyard. A second thing that we realized was that companies that were positioned and able to retool were able to change what they were doing. Now, it's funny. In the present crisis, we've seen a lot of this, particularly in, say, retail and restaurants. Places that went under, and a lot did, but places that said, you know what, we were a wonderful sit-down restaurant experience, we're no longer. We're now a new uh, delivery experience. Funny, one of the things in our studies were companies that chose during downturns to, instead of just go it alone, to partner or to merge with other companies, and one plus one could be three. And we saw that as well in the most recent period. I mean, 
Jared and I have joked, somebody went back and read our report and decided to implement some of those same things now. Now, of course, I know that's not true, but it's a nice joke for he and I to make ourselves feel good. It's the type of thing that you want to think differently about. Could I, in fact, give up some of my control, but get a bigger piece of the pie, get a bigger pie overall, if that makes sense? I want to shift a little bit to an article you recently published in UVA Today uh, about a about a story that's been in the news here in the United States a lot over the, the past few weeks and certainly over, over the past year plus, uh, the Tulsa race massacre. And you have a personal connection to this story. Uh, for folks who have not had the good fortune of reading your, your article, do you mind just telling us a little bit more about how you have a personal connection to this uh, moment, moment in the United States history? Yeah, you know, um, well, first of all, this is kind of an uncommon, um, this is common, an uncommon connection. I, I, what the old statement is, I get it honestly. I got this from my family. Um, and it's not anything, folks, that, um, that you would seek out. Let's, let's agree to that. Um, you've probably seen in the news some things about Tulsa, Oklahoma. And um, in fact, it, today in Someone sent me, you know, people text you articles. I got a text that Tom Hanks has an editorial out today on why all Americans should know about the Tulsa Race Massacre. And he talks about his own experiences in growing up and not knowing about it. But he also talks, if you think about it, Tom Hanks does a lot of movies that are about history. And he talks about the importance of history and understanding history. And that's why he does certain movies is he wants us to understand historical periods and why he thinks it's so important that people know about this event. Um, I happen to know about it all my life. And I happen to know about it all my life because um, my father uh, was born in and grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, more directly, my grandfather um, was 16 at, at the time of the massacre, the riots, the events, um, the destruction. Um, he, my great grandmother and my great uncle were all direct survivors of that event. And it was a bloody devastating event. In many ways, my family was, um, was helped or, or benefited. A, um, you know, uh, there was a huge amount of destruction um, on their street. It looked like a war zone. Uh, but my family's house was spared from the fire and destruction. So my family was able to rebuild quicker. But what I do want to share with people is that while this event was so um, troubling, uh, heavy for my family to live with, um, I do want people to know that the area they're from, Tulsa, Oklahoma, rebuilt. After my grandfather went to college, he returned to Tulsa. And he was one of the people who really wanted the place to rebuild economically. And so he and a number of men, because men, we were kind of sexist at that time, um, created the first Chamber of Commerce in North Tulsa. Um, and some people then later called this the Black Wall Street. There had been a significant amount of business development before, but there was a huge amount of business development even after the riots. And so my my family returned under the notion of growing businesses there. And in case some of you haven't picked up the echo, uh, I, I do what I do in part because of that story, that great devastation had happened to Tulsa, Oklahoma, 
and the area returned quite considerably. And, um, and it's personal, but it does inform the work that I do, whether it's in Haiti or whether it's in Argentina, wherever I go, yes, a little part of me remembers that story. And, um, and so I, I wrote a piece, I, you can read any piece about it. It does happen that my grandfather was a direct observer of pretty much all the events that occurred on those days 100 years ago. And if you look up books about the, the events, you'll find usually an account of Robert Fairchild. And uh, I am Robert Fairchild's grandson. Well, thank you for sharing that, Greg. And I'm glad that you mentioned that echo. I'm sure it occurred to our, our listeners here on, on the talk this morning, just uh, how much of, of that work and returning to hometown and developing the business and that, that your grandfather had been engaged with that, you know, is directly tied to the work that you're thinking about in, in your research. I want to ask a, a question uh, that's, let's, let's put this in maybe the hypothetical category, but it feels real right now with all these kind of infrastructure conversations and the government conversations, Biden administration has come in, maybe a slightly different posture here in terms of the government's role in, econo in the economy and economic development. If, if, you're, if you're Joe Biden, Biden administration, you're sitting there thinking, we have an access to capital issue. Uh, in this country, minorities, women, a lot of groups overlooked, um, as you mentioned, uh, some, you know, earlier that this is, these are groups that for a variety of reasons may not not receive funding. What would you be thinking about from a policy standpoint um, to help address these issues? So it's funny, this is probably I've been getting this question a lot uh, in any of these talks related to uh, my book or the most recent ones I've been doing around Tulsa. Um, in case any of you don't know, and some of you might, I'm gonna encourage you to look into a few different policies we have. Um, opportunity zones and enterprise zones might be known to some of you and you should look at them. There are ways that private capital can be tied to public capital in ways that we can create new firms that invest in areas that tend to get overlooked. You might also look at what are called CDFIs, Community Development Financial Institutions. And so I've been talking earlier about, you know, your local J.P. Morgan Chase Bank, but it turns out, folks, there have been for about 20 years, a set of federally regulated depository banks, credit unions, but also uh, loan funds and venture capital funds that focus on low income areas. When I went to Kentucky I was visiting an organization called Kentucky Highlands Investment Corporation. That's why I was visiting KFC's original location. Kentucky Highlands Investment Corporation. If you look it up, it's committed to investing in Appalachia. And it's been there. This isn't new. It's been there. Um, when I was out in San Francisco uh, with um, a, financial a financial institution in Chinatown, I was visiting um, a credit union, and some of you who might be from San Francisco might, might know this or not know this. There are a lot of credit unions in, in Chinatown in San Francisco that are by the surname. So there's a credit union that was called the Lee Family Credit Union for people with the last name Lee. And that credit union uh, became a credit union that continues to invest in 
low-income San Francisco, which, by the way, is increasingly becoming a challenge because San, San Francisco has so much economic crowding out and gentrification. But those types of institutions, both the bank in San Francisco and Kentucky Highlands are both community development financial institutions. And those are things that I spend time on. By the way, um, the Biden administration did give those institutions through the federal treasury a marked increase in funding. Um, though I would be wrong if I didn't tell you that under the Trump administration, there was considerable increases in funding as well. And, um, and by the way, and, and this is not name dropping, but it is, I'm so committed to this work that um, I serve on the board of the largest CDFI in the country, um, an organization called Local Initiative Support Corporation. And I also serve on the US Treasury's Community Advisory Board, advising the Treasury about community development around the country. So I, I try to be an academic, I try to write, I try to get my hands dirty. There you go. Well, thank you for answering that speculative question, but I'm glad I'm not the only person that's asked you asked you that question. What should the Biden administration be doing right now? I want to make sure we have some opportunity to talk. I, I mentioned it at the top. I want to make sure we, we get to it. Resilience Education, uh, a program that you run with your wife, Tierney, who was uh, mentioned earlier as part of your MBA story. Um, tell us a little bit more about Resilience Education and the work that it does. Well, I saw someone in the chat asked about it. So some, there's some pre-awareness. Uh, so uh, my joke, folks, is I'm the guy that if you come to Darden, I'll take you to prison. And um, so uh, the joke, it, it's a, it's a one-liner. It's an old man joke. But, but here's the deal. Um, a decade ago, um, we became involved in educating people that were behind bars, uh, men, women, who were preparing to make the transition out of being behind bars. In case many of you don't know, A, the US has the largest prison system in the world. B, 90% of currently, currently incarcerated people are going to be released, 90%. C, once they are um, released, one of the questions is how quickly can we bring them back to be contributing members of society? And in short, Brad and everyone, that became the impetus for the creation of resilience education. 10 years later, um, stuff that you would never believe. We, we run this program in three facilities in Virginia and two facilities in New York State. Um, who knows as the economy returns, some other discussions that were going on before COVID with other states could happen. But when I say we, I mean, my wife and I uh, run a nonprofit. We, we have a number of people that are involved. But importantly, um, the program is about you. And by that, I mean, um, the educating that we do is case method. So it's good old Darden, we do case method. But we do case method with people, men and women that are behind bars. But when I say we, all the teaching is done by our MBA students. And if this is, I'll just, I'll just say, I'll give you a stat. Every year, as the first year students are finishing out their first year, we have a call for applicants uh, to teach in prison the next year. And, uh, you know, the class, you would know better than anybody, Brett, 320, 330 people, somewhere in there. Um, for the last five years, folks, we have way more demand to teach in prison than we have slots. 
So we have about 28 teaching slots a year that we can then ask people to come into prison and teach with us. We got 53 applicants uh, three weeks, just as the school year ended. So not only am I the guy that takes people to prison, here comes the second dad joke. Um, I'm the guy that says, I'm really sorry this year you won't be able to teach in prison. It's, uh, it's, it's crazy. But I think it's a testament to that notion that people like you care. There's a stereotype that business people don't care. It's a stereotype. I got 53 people that prove business people do care. And what I'm interested in is how we, uh, through this type of engagement, make change. It's not just, by the way, and it's one more thing, I'm gonna shut up. Um, it's not just that the MBAs educate the people that are currently incarcerated. It's how much the MBAs learn about people who are incarcerated by teaching. And what we've seen is our alumni who've taught in these programs saying in their communities, they want to get involved in dealing with returning citizens, or they want to ask at their company, why do we have rules against hiring ex-felons? And so the change is bi-directional because you get to know these people. I said earlier, the only reason I'm a professor is because professors got to know me at Darden. Well, guess what? That happens in this program. People who teach for, you know, a whole nine months in prison get to know people and they change their views about what it means to be incarcerated in the United States. So, Greg, we're getting close to our time here. We've got a few more minutes. Um, we're both book people. You mentioned this earlier. You teach, you've taught uh, the ethics through literature course. Um, we got this really interesting question in the Q&A earlier about maintaining your creativity um, while in business school and, you know, just staying connected to it during your professional career it can be hard. You know, you're, you're working hard, you're grinding, and it's important, though, uh, for people. So um, books, film, literature, all this stuff, it, how do you maintain your creativity or how do you think these kind of things help uh, with, with this work? Again, Brett is giving you, uh, just again, Brett is giving you guys a gimme question. Brett and I always talk about books and movies and arts. He's totally into this. He's going to make it like it's me, but it's both of us. Um, I do, I, I, I read fiction regularly. He, Brett knows this too. I'm always reading a new novel or short story. Um, I love certain, I love independent films. He knows that too. Um, for those of you, but the question I think is how do we do it? Um, my encouragement is small bites. Um, for years, when I used to go on, even when I was working in the corporate world, when I had my vacation at the holidays, the, the, the holidays at the end of the year, I would read a novel every year and it would just refresh me. Um, if I go away to the beach, I, 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 they call them beach reads for a reason. I do that. Um, I've always tended to say that that's refreshing. Spreadsheets are great. The facts, so-called uh, nonfiction is great, but fiction keeps me on um, how we think about the world we could have or the world we might wanna have. And uh, some of it is depressing. Some of it is, uh, I read a lot of stuff where bad things happen. And I argue in good literature, bad things happen. And so I'm interested in how people respond to those bad things. 
Obviously that fits with my research work, but it also just fits with my view of what it means to be human. So for those of you, um, you know, some people say we're in the golden age of television. Uh, you have more opportunities to watch quality TV than we've ever had. And I, I would buy that by the way. Um, but I also don't want to leave out the printed word and, uh, you know, take a small bite, whoever you are, uh, say, you know, you don't have to read 70 in a year like Brett did, but if you want to take, you know, like two or three a year and just set a goal for yourself. The one thing I'll tell you as alums, if you come to Darden and you become an alum, if you come to Darden, you can take the literature class. If you become alum, we have a uh, regular series of book discussions with alumni. Me and one of my colleagues, Ed Freeman, a famous ethicist, do we'll, we'll set a book. We'll tell everybody that we're going to discuss the book one month from now. And um, we come together now on Zoom, but we used to come together in person and discuss the literature, the fiction book that we had all read together. It's like the biggest, broadest book club in the world. We're going to have to get an Omsglitz person for all these book counts uh, being thrown out um, to, to maybe correct the record. But yes, I, I do like to read, Greg. Any books? I mean, so we asked Denny Kim anything he would recommend. Do you, any books you would recommend for somebody looking at an MBA program or something that you found fun to read in, a, in the literature course uh, with MBA oh. students? Well, there are lots of things I find fun to read. Um, uh, Brett has asked me what I'm reading. This is another one of the Brett things is what are you reading right now, Greg? And I'm looking in my bag um, and I don't have it. All right. I'm reading a book right now called The Plot by um, Julia Han Hanneth Corlitz. Um, and The Plot is about a guy who um, is, in fact, he comes across the manuscript. I won't say much more than this. Uh, one that becomes the best-selling manuscript. And then things ensue. Other quick takes. Um, you know, uh, the book um, Never Let Me Go by Kazuo Ishiguro, depressing and great. Um, you know, fun things. Uh, there's a book called Little Bee by Chris Cleave that I enjoy. Uh, you'll see it in airports. It's one of those types of books, but it's, it's a real pleasure. Um, let's see. Um, I mean, I, 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 I'm, I like Brett, I'm digesting books regularly. You've just asked me to split the baby to use the Solomon, the Solomon reference. Um, I, I like a lot of books and I go across the range. I read a fun book called Such a Fun Age recently. Um, the White Tiger is a book I've loved um, as well. I, I, I graze across a lot of books and I enjoy them. Well, for any of us looking for a, a summer read, uh, perhaps on, on a vacation, got a, got a couple to work with there. Greg, same last question for you that we've asked of all of our office hour participants. Um, for our listeners here, either getting ready to start their MBA journeys or approaching the application process or just doing their research, uh, do you have any advice or anything that you would encourage them to think about? You know, when I was in your position years ago, I, I realized that, I, and this I still think is true, fans, um, I'm not sure that the information that you get across a certain category of schools differs dramatically. I, I, I hate to tell you this, but I think that the knowledge we provide is probably at the base level is probably very similar. What I will tell you is it's about the experience you want. And I think um, having taught at some other schools and been educated at other schools, I think uh, if you want 
a school in a college town, although we are operating in Northern Virginia and DC, and I should certainly say that. Um, if you want a certain type of classroom engagement, if you want a certain type of engagement with other people, do you want to get up on Saturday morning and when you go to the grocery store and you're half awake, run into your classmates? Well, if, that, if that's what you're looking for, that's what Charlottesville's like. And, um, and so I'd say it's the other factors that may swing you. And personally, I've continued to enjoy those factors over a long arc. Greg, thank you so much for, for being here. Always a great conversation. And as is always the case when we talk, I come away with at least a few more books to read. So thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. And that was my interview with Professor Greg Fairchild, a member of the Strategy, Ethics, and Entrepreneurship faculty here at the Darden School of Business. As always, if you have any comments, suggestions, requests, anything you'd like for us to cover here on the podcast, we're all ears. We can be reached at Darden, that's D-A-R-D-E-N, at virginia.edu. Until next time, stay safe, be well, and thanks for listening.